0: Doesn't this remind you completely of um, how Donald Trump viewed Morning Joe as well, right? What Wasn't Donald Trump also, you know, like calling in when he was running for
1: president? Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, February 5th, which means it's Media Monday. Today, John Kelly and I discuss President Biden's apparent obsession with Morning Joe and why the leader of the free world is so fixated on a cable show. John and I also talk about the predictable demise of the messenger and why it probably won't be missed. And we dig into Byron Allen's long shot bid to buy Paramount Global. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. It's media Monday. Of course, I'm joined by John Kelly. We have a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about the messenger. We're going to talk about Paramount. We're going to talk about whatever pops into me and John's brains, because that's <laughs> usually how this podcast goes. John, before getting into some big media news, I want to talk about something that the that, that people who cover the White House and, and people in Washington already know. But Alex Thompson and Axios uh, decided to package this as a big, splashy story <laughs> late last week, which is that President Biden is obsessed, obsessed with Morning Joe. Wait, Peter, you mean uh, he's not looking fe-
0: at his news on TikTok every morning? <laughs>
1: he's, he, are you? Uh, yeah. Oh, man, I'm shocked. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, this is in keeping with Biden's age, Biden's brand, Biden's... I mean, I've had had a conversation with Biden about this myself. Like, he he just likes the old-school reporter types, Uh, you know, like... and, And this sort of flared a lot during the campaign in 2019 and 2020 when he was running. You know, he preferred to sit down with the David Ignatiuses of the world... And yet he was being hounded by embeds being like shouting gotcha questions at him or asking, why aren't you more outraged about this or that? And he's just like not really built for the Twitter era. Anyway, to quote from Alex Thompson's piece in Axios biden's years-long love of msnbc's staple morning show affects how the white house runs and who biden listens to uh he you know loves mike barnacle and richard haas we know he loves john meacham he's he's asked john meacham obviously to like write speeches for him you know and look part of this is those three men i just named like to think big thoughts and think about the sweep of history. And Biden genuinely sees himself like in that category of great men at a historic time. Um, And that doesn't totally, again, like play into the short burst internet hot take world that, that politics really runs on. And he also calls up Scarborough a lot just to bullshit and talk about yeah. media coverage and vent about it, according to <laughs> this Axios piece. Sounds like Trump, by the way. I mean, this is exactly what... Doesn't this
0: remind you completely of um, how Donald Trump viewed Morning Joe as well, right? What Wasn't Donald Trump also... You know, like calling in when he was running for president, and Joe and Mika would talk through the TV. It's just interesting. Um, it's an, another yeah. interesting example of how similar, on some level, Trump and Biden are. But you know what I was thinking as you were as you were talking about this, Peter? Like you and I are of the age where Morning Joe started in like Obama oh seven oh eight, right? So like this is very much um, yeah. And it was essential viewing back then. That was still like peak cable. It was fresh. It was it was new. It was like they weren't together. Like it, it was all these, it was to, it was a different world that we <laughs> lived in. Like uh, Willie was actually young <laughs> back then. And it just occurred to me, this should be the next like uh, James Andrew Miller book. You know, I am dying to know the real stories from inside the green room of Morning Joe. If you think back to when it was essential viewing, I agree with you. I remember waking up at whatever hour, and watching the the first two hours of that, when Axelrod and Gibbs would come in from the spin room, and mm-hmm. it was just like a, a deeper level of uh, political professionalism because Joe had been in, in Congress, uh, and and that was totally uh, fresh, and and you know they had, they had, they had a certain dynamism between them that obviously uh, went the distance, but it caught into something, and then now when you you see it, it's they're they're filming it from Florida most of the time, I think uh, everyone is at a Distinguished point in their career and yet Joe is making like 30 something million dollars in programming five hours of television while an entire new universe is spawning elsewhere. It's just it's the apotheosis of the innovators dilemma here if you're if you're MSNBC. Anyway, these are just sort of top of mind thoughts, but it, it's um, it's not surprising. And it's it's an amazing um, moment that, that, that punctuates our, our media landscape that, you know, while the entire Industry is is beginning to contort. Uh, NBC MSNBC relies on the steady cash flow that comes from the show, even though it seems like, despite its success, there is an
1: extinction event at some point in the future. Yeah, no. The thing that Trump and Biden have in common is obviously like generational, um, and they, uh, you know, read. Well, I don't know if Trump reads, but Biden reads the newspapers Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the clips and watches, you know, like he gets on the treadmill or the Peloton and watches Morning Joe and its uh, usefulness and its currency was there in the Obama years. And uh, because the two men that followed Obama were uh, of a certain generation, they kept watching the news. And I... You know, I don't think its relevance is as powerful as it once was, but, you know, among a certain demo and definitely people in Washington still watch it. um, And the bottom line reason is it's sort of like Puck back in the day. It was while the other cable networks and the morning shows were programming toward this mass market general audience in in flyover country, you know, the moms getting ready to send their kids off to school, like Joe and Mika and the gang were like chewing over this op-ed in the New York times and like reading the front page of the Washington post and talking about what was in playbook and like for the, you know, to use Mark Halperin's term gang of 500, that was Perfect. <laughs> it was like, oh my God, this is on TV. This is awesome. Like I would watch it while I was getting ready, you know, uh, to go out and cover the campaign. on like 07, 08. And you know, you get mad at it sometimes because they're missing a key point or like they booked the wrong guest. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't have the biggest audience in the world, but it has an audience that is, I think coveted by advertisers. But again, yeah, I think, um, we'll see how long that lasts. I do want to pivot John to an- another, I guess sort of Washington New York story, uh, which is the end of the messenger. Mm. This is uh, Jimmy Finkelstein's debacle. Uh, Dylan Byers called it a sort of like quibby like <laughs> failure and that it was a media company that no one was asking for uh, and also you know had a business model that was straight out of 2013, which was scale clicks advertising revenue it was just like buzzfeed huffington post all over again and they were paying a bunch of reporters exorbitant salaries anyway if you're listening to the show you know that me and 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 john and and dylan have been predicting this demise and it finally came about last week do you have any final thoughts here because i feel like there's been so many (laughs) postmortems about The Messenger, even in the last few days, which is just people basically dancing on their grave and, you know, crying foul about how they did their journalists dirty by taking their work offline and not giving them severance. Any final thoughts? Any any fond farewells for Finkelstein and the gang? Yeah, I'll offer a couple here. One, um, which may be a uh, another
0: sort of uh, generational insight into my personality, maybe maybe ours uh, collectively. When totally tragic business events like this uh, occur, I'm reminded of a scene from The Naked Gun uh, Part Do starring the great uh, Leslie Nielsen. Do <laughs> you remember this scene, Peter? I think it's in a, a restaurant where they're They are slow panning across a wall, and there are all these portraits. It's like, you know, of all these like great disasters. It's like the Napoleonic Wars and the Titanic sinking. And then it's a a picture of Mike Dukakis, Um, uh, which always makes me laugh. And and this is one of them, as you said. Yes, no one wanted this, no one needed it. Terrible idea in every single way. But a a couple interesting things, I think, at, at this turn in the bend. I. take a slightly different view on the labor piece of this i don't think that there was much of a business case for this company i think people who took a job at this company knew that they were joining a startup and taking a risk uh one of the, the relevant details from dylan's story last week was that jimmy alone was taking about a million dollars a year out of this thing and so they were paying people wow. you know he was taking being paying himself very well but, but paying others very well too so i don't want to um to view this like we lost a number of teachers or hospital workers like journalists journalism is an important job here But um, people knew what they were getting into. Everyone knew what they were getting into, and in fact, in fact, the thing with Messenger is like it. So there are some kinds of media companies that um that can fool an investor class but never fool the, the the media class right and I think Quibi actually is one where you know investors could say oh it's the future of entertainment but, but people who would worked in the salt mines of short form video a, a, an art that you know very well would know there is no way this is ever going to work and the wrong people are in charge this was that kind of company there wasn't a journalist I've ever met and I speak to many of them as do you who thought this was a good idea so I have a hard time sort of working myself up to feel like this is an employment tragedy I think people took a risk, that's what you do when you join a startup and um, and a lot of people should have known better and it was a money job for a lot of people. I think there will be lawsuits I think that we're about to to cross the Rubicon here to figure out um, whether, what, what the liabilities are, to figure out how much money uh, Finkelstein put in that was his, his own money rather than the investors. I was always suspicious that people like Josh Harris put in real money. I, I don't know what the board composition was like, obviously anyone who is on it is covered by dno insurance but but there will be lawsuits that um that, that come out of this and I don't think there's any real long tail here other than the, the recognition because this, this sort of you know this was the finale of a terrible January in media and particularly you know text-based or journalism media the Wall Street journal laid off 20 people last week too we know that the profession as as we've known it for the last 20 years is getting smaller right fewer people are needed to populate the more traditional parts of it Uh, new ideas are needed where i give finkelstein a lot of credit was the guy made a ton of money a couple years ago 130 million dollars selling the hill to nextar and he didn't just want to go to palm beach and have you know wine lunches every single day he wanted to do something new that is the piece of this that we actually hopefully do have to remember: was it a terrible idea? Yup. Was it was it dead in arrival? Pro- probably. But if we're going to uh, change the narrative of this industry and profession, you're going to need people who are willing to take a chance rather than than burrow themselves in in institutions that are um, that are
1: downsizing. I agree with you that the sadness about media layoffs is better directed toward the layoffs at the Los Angeles Times, for example, uh, or, or some of these more storied brands than what happened at the Messenger because I agree with you. People know what they're getting into. Lots of good reporters over there, but no one is waking up today being like, wait, I can't mm-hmm. go to the Messenger? And, and so I agree with you on that. One, and one more note before we go to break. Um, I uh, sat down with John Favreau out here in Los Angeles for his podcast Offline uh, that went up yesterday. Everyone go check it out to talk about some of the layoffs happening in media and the state of the media industry. And i really echoing some of the stuff that you and I talked about in our last uh, media Monday podcast, talking about um, a bunch of these layoffs and re-listening to our podcast. I like to skip through my parts cause I don't like hearing my voice, but no, your voice is just, Oh, it's so nice. Um, <laughs> you said something smart, which is that as much attention is being paid to what's happening at CNN and the Washington post. It's important to keep an eye on, what will lewis and mark thompson are going to do on the innovation front if they can pull anything off if they can develop new products and formats if they can find new talent and find new revenue models like those are two places that you know at least for now like have a lot of money and can afford to experiment and try to like you know soldier their way through the forest and figure out maybe 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 some new business models here And I told that to Favreau as well, and I think those are the kind of, those are the two places we should be watching for, like, the future, along with Puck, Hmm. obviously, uh, rather than, you know, pouring one out for the messenger, because everyone knows why it didn't work, and everyone predicted why it didn't work, but... Um, some people got paid in the process, and congrats to them.
0: Before we go to a break, Peter, can I just just add one um, asterisk to, to the point that you just made, which uh, I was thinking of this morning. I, I listened to this podcast that Lauren Sherman turned me on to called Print is Dead, Long Live Print. It's a terrible Title. So um, don't hold that against them. But for for people who are um, come out of old media, it's, it's an enjoyable listen. They have on a lot of people from the magazine era that that um, are familiar to, to, oh, cool. to people our age. And I listened to Tina Brown this morning, and I'm you know I'm I'm it out in my life. There's, there's nothing new uh, for me. But she had one insight <laughs> that actually. Was revelatory regarding the two guys that you just mentioned. She was talking about her advantage as a British editor coming to the United States, and she said that it was as simple as the fact that. And she was part of a, of a generation of, of Brits and and Canadians who came in and really uh, reshaped the magazine business, which back then was was you know astronomical. Said journalism was just treated differently as a profession in Great Britain. It was less stuffy. It was it was less self important. It was less of a protected class, uh, and as a result. It was just more commercial and and more innovative. And I thought, okay, you're right. And Will Lewis, uh, you know, I think in most recently, and Mark Thompson in particular, are members of this non sentimental commercial class, and it's it's very fascinating that that they're in the positions that they're in because they will have to compete with a sort of, I think a sense of sort of uh, cultural mores around uh, what, what journalism is and has been. And so it's an, it's a nostalgic profession in the United
1: States, um, but it can't be. That's interesting. I want to check that podcast out. Actually, that sounds yeah, great. great. I want to take a quick break, John. And when we come back, I want to talk about the thirst of Byron Allen and his pursuit of paramount. welcome back to the powers of be everybody it is media monday i'm joined by john kelly john matt Bellamy, and eric gardner have a piece that that went out late last week about paramount global and you know some of the bids around it uh, and, and i actually want to ask you why we're still talking mm-hmm. about this i feel like we've been talking about bids for paramount global for like a year now <laughs> uh, in this iteration at least but byron allen called up matt Bellamy. And, you know, was trying to sell himself, spin himself as, like, why he should be the guy to take over. Um, For people listening, can you explain, like, what's so interesting about this? Because this guy, Byron Allen, he's got the money, uh, or he claims to at least. But it also doesn't seem to be, like, taken as seriously as some of the other suitors for Paramount Global, um, and he really, really wants to be, very clearly. He's calling up Matt and just riffing and calling everyone in Hollywood, apparently, trying to make the case that he's the guy who Sherry should uh, you know, hand the assets to. It's funny. I
0: was hanging out with someone um, very close to this situation the other day, and they were asking why... Puck is so obsessed with it. Now I was saying because I'm so obsessed with this. I feel like well, the the conversation about the sale of Paramount has been happening in the public view since Matt first broke the news a number of weeks ago um, that uh, Ellison, David Ellison and, and Jerry Cardinal from, from Redbird were were considering uh, tendering a bid for, for NIA, the, the parent company but really, you know, I think Bill, who's been a chronicler of this, has been noting that since Sherry came back into the fold since they combined the companies, this was all geared towards a sale and they wanted to be a simple sale. Rather than selling Summoner Redstone's two companies, they wanted to sell one company. I'm not gonna go into details about how much value has been evaporated in the process here. It's astronomical. But anyway, lo and behold, uh, we are we are now at the point now where Sherry's banker, Byron Trot, banker of our time, uh, normally so omerta-like in dealing with these wealthy families, seems to be accepting all kinds of leaks about this, because they wanna push this asset through the door. We know the Elsons are really serious. That The tenor of their seriousness seems to be really resonating. But Byron Allen, who, as you point out, has an unconventional past in media moguldom. He's a former comic... He's an entertainer. He has a, a, a private company that is built largely on the Weather Channel. You know, he tried to buy BET. Matt reported that the, the financing wasn't there, but he, he you know, would have paid $3 billion for BET, which is so much money for that asset that the Redstones probably only could have refused it because uh, they didn't believe in the financing. He tried to, to, to put out a public tender for ABC, didn't go anywhere. And so now he's up the ante for $14 billion, I think, plus the debt on Paramount Global. So that's like close to a 50% premium on where the stock trades now. I think it's, it's trades with like a market cap of like nine or so billion and then uh, 11 billion in senior notes come due on, on a change of control. And he says he's got it all, but the the market is suspicious. Matt quotes um, uh, Rich Greenfield from Lightshed, who I think also seems to think that this is going to be challenging. And the sort of unspoken piece of all this is that the two biggest Paramount Global shareholders uh, it's not the Redstones. it's some some dude named Warren Buffett you might have heard of and, and Mario Gabelli um, a long you know long time serious serious investment manager and they're not gonna deal with any bullshit so if their if their notes become due they're gonna want the money and they're gonna want a premium and I think the redstones are probably uh, circumspect about shareholder lawsuits um, so This is one of those, like, doth protest too much situations, Peter. I feel like we're in a, um, this is becoming a circus. Like, the family needs to sell the assets. In the past, they were, they wanted, I think they subtly wanted to create the most value possible. But at the parent company level, they're profoundly levered. And there's a huge balloon payment due to Wells Fargo in the next couple of months here. And we're now at a stage where it's a need, not a want. I think. I mean, we're talking about people who can always find new financing, but it's 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 ratcheted up to a, to a different level. And uh, Ellison at least seems to be doing his work somewhat quietly, with leaks here and there. The Allen element—it just seems sad. I mean, he texted Sherry his offer. Uh, he told Matt. That's embarrassing. That's not how you normally yeah. present these sort of draft term sheets. Um, but it's it's a microcosm of what this has become here. Like this these these were some of the most historic assets in in all of the entertainment business and and now it's a spoof, you know? Like the the whatever you think of Sumner Redstone, you know, not uh, on the short list of any sort of humanitarian awards, but he he combined i mean, true true and what a I mean you remember that detail he had a, a when he could no longer speak he had an, an ipad programmed to his voice that could only say yes or no or fuck you um pretty just what what, what a guy um but he doesn't deserve this i mean this is just
1: really really I, I think it i think it seems really embarrassing all right john thank you so much for your insight buddy i will see you this week in the slack have a good all right one. you too man talk to you soon Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey.